This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37, found on page 10 of your service guide. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy that will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Great to be back and again so soon. So, <clears throat> Scott, that was a that was a great reading. Um, yeah, you really tell you uh, you really got that text. Thank you very much for that. <clears throat> so this is a uh, this is a spicy spicy passage. Um, so I, I want to actually look at First Thessalonians five fourteen. Just to we'll be there for just a moment. Don't feel like you need to turn there, but if you want. 
Um, just make a couple comments from, from 1 Thessalonians 5.14 before we jump in. Um, <clears throat> so let, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get to it. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, just for this time together. Thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you so much for your grace. Um, help us to receive your word, um, even these hard words that we might not know what to do with, how to read them and how to take them for ourselves, not for ourselves. And Lord, would you just give us wisdom? We need so much help um, in moments like this. So help us, Lord. We look to you. We love you. Um, open our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so first, first Thessalonians 5.14 says, this is at the end of uh, this, this letter where, that Paul is writing to this church uh, to give some encouragement. And at the very end, he kind of gives a handful of practical how-to um, last-minute things that, that he adds on. And he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So here, here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is, is closing this letter, um, and, and he's, he's giving us something of three categories for how we might need to help each other at times, and how we might need to be helped at times in our walk with the Lord. So he gives us these, these three categories, right? He says that sometimes you're going to need to give, and sometimes you're going to need to receive what he calls admonishment, right? Or, or rebuke, or correction, something like that. And at times we're going to need to give and receive encouragement, and at times give and receive help. Sometimes we need a hard word, sometimes we need a soft word, and sometimes we need a helpful word. Sometimes we need a firm push, sometimes we need a warm blanket, and sometimes we need an instruction manual. That's just kind of how the Christian life is going to work together. Um, but then notice at the end of this verse, Paul, Paul says uh, to be patient in all three situations. Be patient with each other. So this reminds us that rebuke, encouragement, and help should all be done in a posture of grace, in a posture of love, in a posture of mercy, in a posture of hope. Right, I, want, I want to just mention this, uh, just because I think it's, it's, it's hard for us to know what to do with hard words. It's hard for us sometimes to know what to do um, with these stinging kind of corrections. Um, we sometimes have a, have a tendency to equate grace and love with, with encouraging words, soft words, warm words. We tend to kind of limit grace to what makes us feel good. So, so kind of by, by default, we tend to think of hard words or rebuke, or correction, as something other than grace, right? Maybe, you know, maybe we know that it's not entirely bad, it's not entirely unwarranted, it might be good and helpful, but it's, but it's not quite in the category of grace, often, in our minds. We tend to kind of pit grace and truth against each other, as if grace were about the tone more than the content, as if the more grace you have, the less truth you have, and the more truth you have, the less grace you have. We see this whenever we say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just more of a, more of a, more of a truth person, so I, I, say, I say it how it is, I tell it how I see it, which is usually just cover um, for just not being nice. Or, or, well, I'm more of a grace person, so I have a hard time bringing up uncomfortable things, right, which is kind of just a cover for being a people pleaser. Um, so, so we take John 1.14 that says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and we kind of think of that as, as if uh, Jesus just kind of perfectly holds together these two inherently contrasting um, these contrasting forces. But in reality, he's full of grace and truth because grace and truth meet at the top. God is truth. He's the truest truth. All truth is true to the extent that it agrees with God. God is grace. He is graciousness. He's the essence of grace. So all grace is gracious only as much as it reflects God. So if we're, if we're going to display God's grace... If we aren't displaying God's grace, we aren't being fully truthful. And if we aren't aligned with truth, 
we aren't really being gracious. So, so yeah, of course, we're, we're going to fall short. We're going to miss the mark in, in, in our day-to-day um, interactions with each other. But the idea is that if you want to be truthful, you have to be gracious. And if you want to really be gracious, you have to be true. Grace without truth is just people-pleasing. Grace, truth without grace misrepresents God. So, so if we roll it back up a level, both admonishment and encouragement need to reflect both grace and truth. For the Christian, whether you're talking to a believer or a non-believer, both rebuke and encouragement flow out of love, mercy, and grace. So this is, this is important. The reason I want to just mention that today is because in this passage, it's just one long rebuke. Right? Do, do you see that? I thought Scott, that's why I thought Scott did a great job reading it. You know, it wasn't monotone. It was, it was, this is a rebuke from beginning to end, at least, you know, the red text. So, and there's, there's a proportion to these things, right? There's a reason that we only see a little bit of these well, kind of spicy passages throughout Matthew where most of Matthew is going to be teaching, telling us the truth, telling us, um, yeah, what is true. And then there's a good amount of encouragement and a little bit of these sharp, stinging rebukes. So it's important because we see this sharp rebuke to the Pharisees. We need to understand the relationship between grace and truth to help us see that this rebuke isn't Jesus lashing out at his ideological opponents. This rebuke is an act of love and grace. Jesus isn't flying off the handle here. He's sternly warning them about the seriousness of their unbelief and their opposition to what he's doing. So, so who are the Pharisees? What's, what's going on here? This, this passage is kind of a key moment in one of the storylines that runs throughout Matthew. So uh, it doesn't get very prominent towards the end, but kind of throughout the book, Jesus is in this growing, simmering, starting to boil conflict with these Pharisees and some of the other leaders of, in, in Israel at the time. So this kind of gets foreshadowed in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist calls the Pharisees that are coming to him brood of vipers. Um, which, by the way, we see that in this passage. It's just kind of an, allu- an allusion or a pointer to Genesis chapter 3, um, which, is a, a, which suggests this association with the devil and with what he's doing. So it's not a, not a compliment. So there's John. But then it kind of simmers down a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. But at that point, it's not quite clear if you know, he's, he's kind of holding them up as a, as a good example, but, but not quite there, or if he's doing something else. He's doing something else. But then he starts to have these arguments with them over various practices and various laws. But this chapter, this passage, is really where it turns a corner. This is where this conflict turns a corner. Um, It climaxes towards the end of the book in chapter 23. And there, you know, just the overview is that there we get a full picture of how Jesus sees the Pharisees, what he thinks is so wrong with the way that they're um, pursuing the Lord. Basically, in that chapter, we see that Jesus exposes the Pharisees as hypocrites who care only about the praise of people and are unconcerned about God and the good of the people. The Pharisees and the other leaders are supposed to help people to know and worship God, but instead, they're actually a barrier between God and the people. And and we see that in this passage. They're a barrier between people and faith in Jesus. Jesus is so firm in this passage because these men are opposing his own work to seek and save the lost. Which brings us to the, the main point for, for today. So this passage challenges us, it should challenge us, to consider the ways that we are working with Jesus in our lives, in the lives of others, and the ways that we are working against what he's doing. The ways that we're opposing him. 
What is Jesus doing in your life and through your life? He is doing something. If you're a believer, he is working in you. Are you working with him? Or are you opposing him in that? So first, just notice why Jesus gets so heated at the Pharisees. Notice this event that, that rolls out. So in 22, he heals a man. He casts out a demon. Then notice what happens in verse 23. People start asking, can this be the son of David? Basically, they're starting to get it. They're starting to see that there's more to Jesus than just a prophet, more than just a miracle worker, more than just a teacher. So quick history, David was was this great king in Israel's history. And at some point, God had promised him that one of his sons would sit on his own throne forever. And this son would build a temple for God and that it would be really, really good for Israel. So David's immediate son, Solomon, kind of fulfilled this. He started really strong, but then he went off the rails, right? And it went, went south pretty quick, and eventually he died, so he can't reign forever. So over time, Israel started to look for this promised son of David to rule over Israel, set everything right for them. And, and this is what, what John was asking about back in, back in chapter 11 a couple weeks ago. So they're starting to wonder if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the chosen one. They're waiting for someone, and they're starting to think, this might just be him. They're at the very threshold of saving faith. Do you see that? They almost believe in Jesus. And then they go talk to the Pharisees. They go talk to the Pharisees. And in their just overflowing genius, they offer this refutation. They say, nah, he's not the Christ. He's just a pawn of Satan to heal people and cast out demons. You know, stuff Satan does all the time. And and so remember, in Israel at the time, the Pharisees are the good guys, right? They're the good guys. So they're, they're trusted. They're the pillar of the community religious leaders. So if you're wondering if someone might be the son of David, the Pharisees are the people that you go and talk to. So this, this refutation of Jesus, it, it, it kind of seems silly, and that's exactly what Jesus pokes at, is how ridiculous this is. But from the Pharisees, it's going to land. It's going to have some purchase with people. They're the people who know what they're talking about. So the Pharisees have become a barrier between these people and faith. There are some who would have believed and been saved, but for these men. So Jesus digs into them, digs into their argument with the tone and the sternness that it deserves. So notice, he isn't, he isn't teaching them here. He's not, he's not explaining how things work. He's not explaining how kingdoms work. He's not like, hey, by the way, you might not know this. You might not know this. But if, if a kingdom is kind of attacking itself, that's not good, by the way. They know that. Of course, everyone knows what civil war is. That's not a good thing. He's rebuking them. These are rhetorical questions that are meant to show how silly this argument is. So Jesus gives basically three quick comments to point out the silliness of this argument. So first, in verses 25 and 26, he says, why would Satan wage war against himself? Right? Why, why would Satan purposely attack his own kingdom and... and get rid of his own territory. Second, notice in verse 27, this is kind of interesting. He references these, these other Jewish exorcists. And so apparently there, there were some men in Israel who were known to be able to cast out demons. And Jesus, Jesus points to them to kind of highlight the extreme nature of the Pharisees' accusation against himself. He's basically saying, why do you say that I'm working with Satan when a much more reasonable response would be to say something like, well, I'm just one of those other exorcists. Why is it that I'm working with Satan and not them? Why is it that the power I'm working with is so different than theirs? Do you see that? 
These other men are casting out demons, and no one accuses them of working with demons. Why then do they escalate on Jesus so aggressively? They recognize something in Jesus that threatens their status, their power, their prestige that they just don't see in the exorcists. So then third in 29, he says simply, if, if I'm robbing Satan of his captives, doesn't that mean that I first had to overpower Satan? So Jesus is not the kingdom of Satan against the kingdom of Satan, but Jesus is the kingdom of God breaking in and undoing the kingdom of Satan. So next, starting in verse 30, this is where Jesus turns kind of from defense to offense. And this is probably the moment that this, this conflict turns a corner. So far, he's been defending his own work and his ministry, but then he turns his accusation against the Pharisees. So, so listen to this again, and, and just let the, let the seriousness of this settle on your soul. Listen to the, the words of Jesus Christ. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral with Jesus. You're either with him or against him, working for him or against him. So now in the case of the Pharisees, this, this takes the most serious and stark uh, meaning that it could. Think about what's, what's happening, to use Jesus' image right, of, of breaking in and robbing the strong man. Jesus has been working miracles, and some are starting to believe. He has bound Satan, and he's untied some captives. right? And they're heading out the door. But then they meet the Pharisees. And at the door, the Pharisees tie them back up and toss them back in the house of Satan. So to them, Jesus is saying, I'm working against Satan, and you are working against me. Whose side does that put you on? Which brings us to, verse, uh, brings us to the, the two verses, 31 and 32, where we see what's called the unforgivable sin. So notice this, this doesn't just come out of the blue, right? This isn't just kind of something that he throws in there as a, as a fun little anecdote, right? This, this whole passage, this whole rebuke has been leading up to this. So this is a very serious comment to people who are very seriously engaged against Jesus, so before teasing this out, you know, one big question is, what is this sin? Have I committed it? What, you know? So before teasing this out, I just want to say a bit about what it's not. So right off the bat, based on the context here, unless you are an active, settled opponent of Jesus and his kingdom, don't lose any sleep over this. Do you run a YouTube channel opposing Christianity? If not, this probably doesn't apply to you. And even if you do, it still might not. He isn't just talking about resisting the Holy Spirit or even grumbling or thinking blasphemous thoughts against God. If that were it, who could be saved? Who, who of us has never opposed God or opposed what he's doing in our life? So this is a very high level, very serious thing he's talking about. So the issue here is, 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 is what's been called a sin against knowledge. The idea is that there, there are some who don't realize who Jesus is, and so they oppose him. Um, and speak against him kind of just out of ignorance, right? That's, that's still sin, but that's a, a normal kind of very forgivable sin. On the other hand, there are some who do realize who Jesus is, but because of social pressures or fear of uh, losing status or whatever, love of praise, they still oppose him. They understand who Jesus is, and yet they oppose him. That is what Jesus is talking about here. And so the, the idea isn't that, that sins of ignorance are fine and that sins against knowledge are unforgivable, but 
Because for the Christian, most of our sins are going to be sins against knowledge, right? We, we, we know who Jesus is. We know um, what God says is right and wrong. And so when we sin, the, most of our sins are going to be sins against knowledge. But what Jesus is talking about here is an active antagonism to Jesus combined with knowledge, combined with knowing full well who he is. So this is what, what he's uh, getting at with the contrast between blasphemy of the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, so don't think necessarily about this contrast between two persons of the Trinity, right? between, or between Son and Spirit, um, but rather between the Son's human nature and his divine origin and power and mission. You see I'm talking about um, in verse 28, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So the Bible is going to talk about Jesus sometimes as the Son of Man and sometimes as the Son of God, right? These both point to the same person, but they're not just interchangeable names, right? They each emphasize something different about Jesus. And so this is, this is why it's such a big deal in just a couple chapters that Peter calls Jesus the Son of God in Matthew 16. He, he's, he's seeing something that isn't just on the surface. He's seeing more than just the Son of Man. So if, if you see Jesus as just a man, if you see just the Son of Man and not the Son of God and you oppose him, say bad things about him, that's still sin. Right? If you're running that YouTube channel, that's still sin. But that's normal, forgivable, through repentance and faith. But on the other hand, if your eyes have been opened and you've come to start to see who Jesus really is, that he isn't just the Son of Man, but he's also the Son of God, that his power is the power of God, that his works are the works of God, that's what Jesus is pointing to. That's what he's warning against here. So in this case, uh, if you notice in verse 25, Jesus says, or the, Matthew says that Jesus knows their thoughts going into this rebuke. So, so we don't know where they all stand, but since he's giving this warning, we can assume at least kind of on the main, they haven't crossed that line yet, but they're in very real danger of doing so. So it, it's likely that there are some in this, this group of Pharisees it's like that there are some who really have no idea, that they don't think he's the son of David. They really just think he's some guy. They're opposing him because they think that that's just the good and godly thing to do. So that's, that's the blasphemy against the son of man that he's talking about. But on the other extreme, there might be some in this group who actually do think he's the son of David, who are starting to, are starting to believe that he really is the one who's to come. But in some twisted way, they care more about their power, their status, and their praise, and they recognize that Jesus is diminishing that. Therefore, they don't want people to believe in him, even though they know who he is. Now, likely, there, there's several of them who are somewhere in the middle, who are starting to believe, or starting to wonder, at least. They're starting to think he might just be the son of, the son of David. He might just be the son of God. But, but for their fear of getting rejected by the other Pharisees, they just don't really let themselves see what they think they're starting to see. To them, they, they haven't quite sinned against knowledge, right? at least not against the, the full noonday sun. And it's these that Jesus is appealing to, that he's warning, that he's pleading with. They're starting to think that he might be it, but they suppress it for what it would mean for them. So this is like a, a friend of mine. Um, I think it was towards the end of college. Was some high school buddies of mine, of mine we, we met up for a weekend towards the end of college just to kind of reconnect. We hadn't seen each other in several years. And I think there was four or five of us and we just got together and we're hanging out. I think we were boating or something like that. And one of the nights we were there, I think by that point, two or three of us had become Christians. And, and one of the nights we were just talking about life and faith and just what's, what's important in life. And we were sharing the gospel with one of the guys. And we could tell that this one guy was getting more and more and more interested. 
And so we stayed up till three, four in the morning, just pleading with him. Like just every, every argument we were making, he was just like, I get that. I get that. I concede. I get that. That's a good point. And they just, he was just putting up no, no real fight, but he just wasn't, wasn't willing to go in. And towards the end, how the conversation ended that night was he just said, I, like, I, I think I, wa- I want to believe that. I want to be a Christian, but if I became a Christian, I'd just lose all of my relationships. I would have nothing for me back home. So he'd gone off, you know, we all went our separate directions in college, and so where he, he landed, this was several years in, basically all of his friends, all they did together was chase girls and get drunk. And so he, and they would just mock Christians together. And so he knew that if he became a Christian, he would lose all of those relationships, everyone that he knew. And so that was how that conversation ended. He, he was starting to see, he maybe even saw, but he just wouldn't let himself really see. And so, so that story had a happy ending. I think just like three months later, I just saw a picture online of him getting baptized. That was crazy. So I, uh, just to fill it in, so the Lord just kind of put someone into his life. Someone just came up to him on campus one day. It was just like, do you want to come to church, man? I, I don't know why. I'm kind of scared of you because I know who you are, but do you want to come to church? And he was like, yes, let's do that. So they became friends. You know, he got baptized. So that story had a happy ending. Eventually he did see. Eventually he did see. But maybe you're in that process. Maybe someone you know is in that process. And sometimes it's those people, and it's in those situations that we can put up the most aggressive fight. The most aggressive fight. Because if we didn't see, we just wouldn't care. And it wouldn't mean anything to us. But if we're starting to see, that's when we're going to be the most aggressive. Feel like a threatened dog in a corner. So, then we get to these last five verses. 33 through 37. In the context of Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees, what he's doing here is driving this rebuke even deeper. He's saying that their problem isn't, that, isn't just what they say or what they do, but rather that it goes to the very core of who they are. Jesus does kingdom of God works because at his very core is the kingdom of God, but the Pharisees oppose the kingdom of God because the very core of them is opposed to God and his works. That's what he's, he's saying with the trees and the treasure. An apple tree... You know what fruit it bears? It bears apples. A crab apple tree bears crab apples. You know how you tell when you found an apple tree? Apples. The treasure, you can only bring out what you have in the house. So, so passages like this remind us that Christianity is irreducibly spiritual. We need more than just a, a change of opinions or a change of beliefs. We need more than a change of behavior. We need an inner spiritual renovation. The bad tree needs to get pulled up. A good tree needs to be planted. This is what we mean when we say that we're all born dead in sin, that we all need a new heart. We're all born with hearts bent inwards towards self and away from God. That's not to say, of course, that that we can't do good things or act selflessly before being given a new heart, but that the balance of our lives will tend to place self in the seat of God. Who do we ultimately belong to? Self or God? Who gets the credit for your achievements or the good things in your life? Self or God? Who defines the course of your life or the grounding of moral duties? Self or God? Okay, so, so in this passage, we basically see three things. Right? First, the Pharisees oppose Jesus in the lives of others. Second, we see that the Pharisees oppose the work of Jesus in their own life. And third, we see that they oppose Jesus because they are dead in sin. Hearts are bent away from God. So how can we apply this to ourselves? 
like I said in the beginning, the basic idea of this text is the importance of working with Jesus and not opposing him. So let's, let's just work backwards through this text to consider three ways to work with Jesus, taking it as a warning and an admonition. So first, how can we cooperate with Jesus in conversion? Second, how can we cooperate with Jesus in growth in godliness? And third, how can we cooperate with Jesus in the lives of others? So first off, when I say cooperation with Jesus in conversion, we need to be very, very clear that in the most important senses, there just is no cooperation with Jesus in salvation. We bring nothing but sin and need. His suffering alone pays the penalty for our sins. His righteous life alone satisfies the righteous requirement of God's law. Penance is useless. Merit is meaningless. So we don't cooperate in salvation like that. And further, Jonah 2.9 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says that faith is a gift of God, that we're saved by grace as a gift, specifically so that we can't boast. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that God gives repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth. And Jesus, in John 3, says that we need to be born again before we can see the kingdom of God. So before we can even see Jesus and come to him, God needs to renew us. So the point is, in the language of our passage, before we can bear good fruit of seeing and believing, we need God to uproot the old tree and plant the new. So we can't cooperate with Jesus in terms of satisfying God's law, but we can't cooperate with Jesus in terms of becoming a good tree that bears good fruit. For all of that, we are completely dependent on God. There is no cooperation there. So how can we cooperate in what Jesus is doing when it comes to even our own salvation? So we can say two things. First, God grants repentance and causes the new birth through means. Which means that God won't just zap new spiritual understanding into you in your bedroom while you're just kind of zombie scrolling on your phone. But he'll grant repentance to you, if he will, he'll grant you faith through his word. Most often, through the preaching of his word. So second... Often the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us slowly, not all at once. This is what's historically been called coming under conviction. This is where you start to see a little bit of Jesus, but not enough to see and be saved. Enough to recognize that you really should. Enough to know the seriousness of sin, but not enough to know peace with God. The sun hasn't risen yet, but you're just starting to see light on the horizon. So to cooperate with Jesus in salvation is just to say, if you're starting to have a hunch that Jesus should mean more to you than he does, don't ignore that. Don't push it down. Don't write it off. Don't get distracted. Put yourself in situations where you can hear the word of God. Find friends who can help you to come to see and know Jesus more fully. If you're starting to see glimmers and glimpses of who Jesus is, keep looking and look more closely. So to get practical, keep coming to church. Get your own Bible. Start reading it. Find someone you can ask questions to. Try to meet up with someone. Talk about the Bible. Read good books. Try to figure out your hang-ups. What, for, for, you know, for my friend, he, he recognized he needed people in his life. And then God brought people into his life. What hang-ups might be hanging you up? <clears throat> Don't be passive in this. Seek him as he's seeking you. Okay, so then working our way back up. How can we cooperate with Jesus and what he's doing in you to mature you as a Christian and as a disciple? So think specifically of verse 30 again. Whoever is not with me is against me. What is Jesus doing in your life right now? Are you working with him? Are you working against him? There's no neutral. 
So this is such an encouraging thing. Jesus is already working in your life and heart. If you are a Christian, he is working in you. Is there some secret sin that you need to bring to light and put to death? Is there some perpetual attitude that you need to repent of? Grumbling or discontent or envy? Some fruit of the Spirit that's languishing? Love, joy, peace, contentment? Some duty he's urging you to walk in? Prayer, worship, or fellowship? Sometimes the first step towards cooperating with Jesus and pursuing holiness is simply spending time in prayer reflecting on your own heart and your own life to see what Jesus is already putting his finger on. Often it's pretty straightforward from there what the next step might be. And this is because you're not, you're not blazing a new trail. You're not setting out on some work site. You're not clearing the land to start building the building. It's already begun because Jesus is already working. That's the point. You're not figuring out what you need to start doing. You're joining him. To me, this is super encouraging just because it's, it's really easy for me to feel like I'm not going to change. For me to feel like I've been wrestling against this attitude or this behavior or this reaction for years and years and just ha- I just haven't seen growth. Usually I'm overreacting and there actually is a lot of growth, but it just feels like there is no growth. Like I'm never going to be more prayerful. I'm never going to be more patient or less critical or whatever else. But in this idea, I'm reminded that when I'm pursuing these things, God isn't just kind of standing by, waiting to see how it turns out, but he is working in me and for me. If it's just me, trying to make me more gracious, more meek, more wise. I have no real confidence that it's going to work out. It might, but it might not. But God is working on the same project, and he won't fail at it. So Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. To work with him as he works in you. So last, I ask you just to think about how you might cooperate with Jesus in the lives of those around you. How could you do the opposite of what these Pharisees did at the beginning of this chapter? When someone comes to you wondering out loud if Jesus is the son of David, would you loudly and clearly say yes? Yes, he is. So who is the Lord placed around you? How might, you use, how might he use you as a pointer towards Jesus? Your wife, your husband, your kids. How can you cooperate with Jesus in their lives? How can you, like Hebrews ten twenty four says, consider how to stir them up towards love and good works? Consider it. Consider how to stir them up. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What, what is Jesus doing in their lives right now? How can you participate in that or your roommate or your friends or, or whomever? Or you could expand the circle a little bit. Think about your neighbors, your coworkers. If, if tomorrow, here's a little thought experiment for you. If tomorrow your neighbor or your coworker had a sudden urge to know more about Jesus, would they come and talk to you? Would he come and talk to you? Do they know you're a Christian? Do they trust you? What would it look like for you to build a relationship where that just might happen? Or is there anyone, anyone else in your life who's spiritually hungry? What would it take for you to help them? Could you give them a good book? Could you get coffee with them? Talk about following Jesus. Could you invite them to come to church with you? This is this guy uh, I met at church a couple of weeks ago. I was just doing security, and he was dropping his kid off at the nursery, and I didn't recognize him, so I just kind of said, you know, hey, what's your name? How long have you been coming? He was like, yo, I'm so-and-so, and this is my second time. Let's go, great, let's meet up. So we got coffee together. Turns out he got baptized like two months before that. And just out of the blue, you know, he, he had, got married recently, had a kid not too long after that, and just out of the blue, just had this urge to figure out what Jesus is all about. Didn't grow up going to church, knew nothing of it. Found one guy, led him to the Lord, but was going to church like an hour away, so was looking for a new church, right, that kind of thing. I was like, this is crazy. And so we've just been, meet, been meeting up and doing nothing more than just reading the Bible and talking about really 
just basic stuff. And he's just gobbling it up because he's just hungry. Right? And this is someone that Jesus is just obviously already working in. And I would not be surprised to see there might be people like that in and around your life as well. So how could you posture yourself to be open to those kinds of people, to those who are hungry for Jesus? Even today, people will still just wander into churches because they feel like they need some more religion. So would you have eyes to see those people and be willing to introduce them to Jesus, the only one who can really satisfy what they're looking for? So I want to end this just by nailing it to the solid rock of gospel assurance. So turn, turn with me to Romans 5, Romans 5, 1 and 2. We'll, we'll end there. I just want this to shape the way that you think about cooperating with Jesus and what he's doing. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So notice the past. We have been justified. We have been given peace. So we don't cooperate with Jesus in order to gain peace. Do you see that? We cooperate with Jesus, we work with Jesus because of what he has already given us. Notice the present. Through Jesus, we have access into grace. In our failure, in our unwillingness or inability to cooperate with Jesus, we don't get law and rejection, but we get grace and restoration. We don't cooperate out of fear of judgment, but out of the security of grace. In grace, cooperation doesn't mean sinlessness. Of course, that's the goal, but in grace, cooperation is as much about what you do when you sin as putting off sin in the first place. Cooperation in grace means that we are quick to come to Jesus in our sin and confess to him, expecting and receiving mercy. So then notice the future. We rejoice now in the certain hope of future glory. We don't cooperate with Jesus as those who think that we might possibly grow in Christ-likeness. But we work with Jesus as those who are certain of future, perfect enjoyment of holiness. Your sin will know a last day. You will have a last impatient comment. You will have a last lustful glance. You will have a last dishonest word. One day you will be done sinning to never sin again. One day, you will walk in the glory of your Lord. You will walk in the holiness of your Redeemer. So work for that day, knowing that in His grace, it will come. Let's pray.